Hey, this is Corey Wong. If you are interested in guitar players, if you're interested in artists and how they think, why they create, what it is that motivates them to create, come check out my podcast, Wong Notes Podcast, where I get to interview some of my absolute heroes, people like John Mayer, Niall Rogers, Jacob Collier, Madison Cunningham, Benson, Vi, Santana, Satriani, Lukather, Matheny. Oh, the names are insane icons of the guitar, icons of artistry and creativity. I absolutely love sitting down with these musicians and getting to ask them about their creative process and get into the details of why they do what they do. Check it out, Wong Notes. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. everybody welcome back to uh, another episode of chasing frets my name is jason shadrick and i'm joined this week by joe gore how you doing it's an excellent day if i'm talking to mary halverson and jason shadrick <laughs> well today is is uh is going to be a fun topic because we we talked to mary about developing her own voice and some of the some of the unique unique things about her process whether it's you know uh miking uh, an electric guitar in addition to an amp or how she uses open strings and her process and her kind of journey to to finding what makes her her and really focusing on that and bringing it out it's seemingly an impossible paradox because mary, mary is known for her her free playing like you know, plugging in sitting down and creating a composition on the spot in this episode we you know press her a little bit about about the how that process works and she talks at length about preparations you can make exercises you can invent for yourself uh you know the psychological states of mind so we're kind of asking her to give us the um the structure and order of something that's by nature not especially structured um mm -hmm. and she she really comes through she's thought about this stuff a lot she does and i really uh i i hope well, when she hears us back i really want to implore her to like write a book oh that you know, would be the, great these ideas and exercises she talks about uh are, are would be are, are so valuable and so interesting that I would uh, I would be the first one in line to pick that up. So if you're listening, Mary, Mary if you're listening, <laughs> please take my money. Yes. So uh, so here's our second episode this week uh, with Mary Halverson. So uh, we'll see you later this week. Mary, anyone who's heard you play realizes that you're a very distinct stylist. You have your your own approach, not just the free and unconventional aspects of your playing, but the way that you mix those unconventional aspects with slightly more traditional things. And you've come up with a really strong identity, you know, love it or hate it. It's, it's undeniable what, what Mary Halverson guitar is like. Is that something that can be learned? Is that something that is, you know, maybe imagine, you know, maybe a jazz student coming up through a standard program and they've, you know, they've got the usual technique books and they're playing, you know, real book tunes and round robin solos. Um, how can someone get from that point to having something unique? Um, well, it's a, it's a good question. I think, first of all, not everybody wants that. Um, so I, I think, you know, I, I keep coming back to Anthony Braxton, and I, I know I talked about this in the last episode, uh, who was my teacher, but he would talk about something called stylism versus restructuralism. Um, and stylism would be, 
basically perfecting and, and even innovating with, within a style. Um, and restructuralism would mean, I guess, taking all that and, and making something new um, or, or taking something that, that hadn't exactly, didn't exactly fit into a, a pre-existing style exactly and, and maybe would be taking it a step farther, uh, maybe something that couldn't be as easily defined by a genre. Can you apply that Braxton lens of stylism and restructuralism to some of what you do? I mean, what, what aspects of what you do would you, would you categorize as one or the other? Yeah, I mean, he, he, you know, he was talking about that when I was a student, and, and he was basically encouraging his students to, to go for the restructural thing, you know, to, to try to take elements from all these traditions, um, to respect the tr- tradition, learn the tradition, and then try to do something different, which is what he did. Um, you know, if you look at his music, it's coming from somewhere. And, it, you know, it's clearly rooted in, I mean, not just jazz, but all kinds of, you know, he was really into Stockhausen. Um, he was really into all kinds of modern classical music. He, you know, he would talk about anything. All, he would talk about pop music. Um, so, so I think that was a strong lesson for me. And, and, you know, him being one of my biggest influences, I saw what, what he was doing and thought, oh, I want to do that. But, but I don't want to copy him. <laughs> because that would exactly de- defeat the purpose of, of what he's teaching us. Uh, can you remember some of your steps along that pathway, like, like breakthroughs you had where you felt your vocabulary took a restructuralist bent? Yeah, I mean, one of the things, another thing he would always say, and again, this was such a strong lesson for me at, at age 18, 19, when I was studying with him, is he would always say, if you're not making mistakes, something's wrong. Um, and I think he felt that if, if people didn't make mistakes or didn't embrace their mistakes, they weren't really taking risks. And if they weren't taking risks, they weren't going to push beyond what they were already doing. So, so these lessons were kind of drilled into my head. And I think one thing that, I, that I've always tried to do that I still try to do is to try to turn mistakes into a good thing. And it doesn't always work. I mean, sometimes a mistake is just sounds bad. Uh, but there will be moments when, when you can play something maybe you didn't intend. Um, and you can say, wait a second, actually, that was kind of cool. And, and one thing I've always tried to do is just be aware of those things. And if I play something that, that I think is cool or, or maybe different than I've played before, to kind of stop and then hone in on it. So instead of just moving on saying, oh, what was that? Like, I'll give you an example. I, I play a lot of open strings in my within my line playing. So I might hit an open string in, in the middle of a phrase or something. That started out as a mistake. I just hit the wrong string. And I thought, oh, I kind of like that. So then maybe I'm, you turn it to an exercise. So maybe I'm working on an E minor arpeggio, but I'm throwing random open strings in the middle of the line, um, just an, as an example of an exercise you can make out of that. Um, and then you work on it until that becomes sort of a part of your language. And I, I also think writing your own exercises is a really good way to, to develop a sound because then, you know, as much as we're talking about exercise books, I love exercise books, but I think it's also good to supplement that with just really coming up with like listening to your intuition and coming up with exercises that you've made yourself. Um, and that's always been kind of a conundrum for me too, because if I show students exercises I wrote, it's, it's okay. But, but I, I would rather have the student kind of come up with their own things in, in the big picture. I think that's how you can start to develop ideas that are, that are really true to you. And the other thing I would say about it is I feel like often the, the first instinct is, is the best one. I think people have some idea that, you know, to come up with your own voice, it, it's like you have to you know, hidden thing, you know, that you really have to chip away. But I think often the first thing that pops into your head, um, and it might be something very simple or very obvious can is, is the thing that 
is most you because that's what's on the top of your head. That, that's your instinct. And I think what gets in the way is people get self-conscious um, or your brain says, no, that's dumb, you know, and then you don't explore something for that reason. So I think just being open and again, to tie it back to Anthony, being open to making mistakes and trying something and it might not work, but you know, even if it works one out of 10 times, then maybe you've found some idea that you can work on and develop. And, and that could mean something very different for everybody. Where does the idea of, uh, of ego fit into your idea of developing a sound? Because to me, I feel like, and this is one topic we're going to talk about more in depth on a future episode, is that you should be your favorite guitar player. Like in order to, to foster and cultivate your sound, you, you have to believe that you are your favorite guitar player. Where does that kind of, the healthy side, that, the healthy part of, of ego fit into developing a sound for you? Yeah, I guess I, I would have phrased it a little differently. For the way I think about it is more that you have to have confidence in, in your ideas and you have to be playing things that you think are, are creatively interesting. And you need to be doing it for yourself, not for what you perceive an audience might or might not like. Um, so I think, you know, there's always a balance between that stuff, right? You need to have the confidence, but you also need to have a whole lot of humility um, and you need to be able to critique yourself in order to get better. So I think it, it's sort of a balancing act. When it comes to your idea of actually the, the sound of your instrument, because one thing I noticed about you right away is you don't have like a traditional jazz guitar sound. Was that something you uh, was kind of always in place from the beginning when you started to get into jazz? Or did you go through a more traditional viewing of tone and landed where you are now? Um, I think it probably took me a while to to find the tone that, that I liked on, on my instrument. But for some reason, from very early on, I was always into having a strong attack. Um, I always yeah, had like a that. thick pick and I always liked to hit the guitar hard. So that part of it for me was pretty instinctual. And then I think just over the years of, you know, hearing music and developing my own thing, I, I kind of found, you know, a basic tone that, that I like, you know, through an amp and through my guitar. Uh, that definitely took some time. But yeah, but part of it w was there all along, I think, which again, is, is just the type of attack I was drawn to, um, which is interesting. I mean, I think, you know, there's so many and that's another we were talking last time about the diversity of the guitar. But that's one thing about the guitar, too, is that, you know, there's so many guitarists that that have the opposite type of sound. And I love that sound. And I love what they do with it. Um, you know, there's so many different approaches you could take. So I think it's just a matter of finding, you know, which one works for you. Well, what you mentioned a few minutes ago, about incorporating open strings is in a to oversimplify grossly, you know, that's not a jazz thing. You know, I, I, I'm oversimple. A million exceptions, of course, but um, you know, like the kind of if there's a, a jazz ethos to playing, it's more pianistic, and you tend to play stopped strings so that you can, mm -hmm. you know, play in all twelve keys with an even sound. And just the very notion of making this this you know open strings innately sound different from stopped strings, and um, your decision to make that, even though you described it as an originating in an accident, you know, the decision to make that one of your signatures is uh, automatically a, a divide with, uh, you know, jazz orthodoxy. Right. And I, I think, I guess I've never cared too much about jazz or orthodoxy. I mean, I love jazz and, and I love taking stuff from it, but I mean, I guess that's the, the 
thing I consider a blessing about the way I was taught is I was never taught that, no, this is right and this is wrong. Um, and I, I think with the open string thing, the other influence for that is I, I love the sound of the upright bass. And I love the sound when a bass player hits an open string, it has such a huge sound and so different from if they hit the same note, um, not on an open string. So, so part of it for me is also just the fact that I enjoy that big attack and I, I enjoy the sound of, of the way the string resonates when, when it's an open string. Are you still in the practice of miking your electric guitar? I know you did that at one point. Yeah, I usually, I mean, if I'm playing in a tiny club or something, I don't do it. But if I'm playing in a bigger room or if I'm recording, I always mic the strings. Um, and what, talk about that, please. I mean, it's part of what I said. I mean, part of why I have a big hollow body guitar is I do love the acoustic quality of the guitar. So I love it when you can hear the wood and the strings and the scraping and, and the attack and all that stuff. I think that's such a critical part of, of the sound of the instrument. So I really like having that, but I also really like the duality. So you, you have a sound from the amp and maybe you have some effects and you can hear that right alongside the acoustic tone. Um, that's something I've always been interested in. So I do try to make sure that, that the acoustic sound of my instrument can be heard. What do you, do you go for when you're, when you're playing a venue where you're lucky enough to have a sound person, mm -hmm. do you instruct them to dial in a particular mix of amp and mic'd sound? Yeah, I do. I mean, it's not an exact science, um, but I tell them I want the amp louder, but I want the acoustic to be able to be heard. And sometimes I'll even play something really loud and distorted and I'll say like, I want the acoustic sound audible here, but just barely. Um, so when it gets really loud, you can still hear just a tiny bit of the attack. And when I'm playing with a, a clean sound, you know, it, again, it's not exact. It would probably be like, you know, 30, 25, 30% of the sound maybe. How do you tend to mic it? Um, I usually put a mic just like, I don't know, maybe six inches in front of basically where I'm, where my picking hand is. Um, and then, so I can, so you can hear some of the, uh, acoustic sound, but also some of the attack. And is that something you mirror in the, in the studio as well? Yes. Uh, so last summer you came through with Thumbscrew and played a gig here in mm -hmm. Iowa. And I, I picked you up from the airport and I was so like kind of taken aback by what, your travel guitar. Like it didn't even, it didn't oh, yeah. even, I remember when you were like loading your luggage in, I'm like, Oh, did you not bring a, a guitar? Cause it doesn't yeah, look you, like a guitar. What happened to your guitar? Did you forget yeah. your guitar? So tell me about this travel guitar you have, if people aren't familiar with it. So it's, I had it built. It's by a luthier named Flip Scipio, who's also a good friend of mine. He's brilliant. And I got the idea again, another idea I stole from bass players. Um, but I loved how I would see bass players traveling with removable neck bases, which now it seems like nobody's even really doing that because the airplane thing has gotten so bad. They're usually just borrowing bases. But when bass players were, I guess they sometimes still are traveling with these removable neck bases, I thought, well, why can't I do that with a guitar? And, I, you know, it has been done. I'm not the first person to do it. But um, just carrying on guitar to me is so stressful. It just makes the flying experience so stressful. Um, and, you know, I could have probably just had a flight case made for my guitar, but it's, it's a, the neck comes off. I have a little square suitcase that, that I, I put it in with foam padding. It's a great case. I've seen them throw it from like 20 feet off the airplane and it was fine. Um, and then it takes me about three minutes to put it together. It's, it's amazing. So I put a capo around the string so I don't have to um, restring it every time. I just have to tune it up basically. It stays in perfect tune. I mean, he, he did a great job. I don't know how he did it. Um, but I also, I love the guitar. So it's, so now I get to travel 
pedal with an instrument I really love. And it's just, it's made my life a, a lot easier. Because your normal guitar, is it a Guild? Mm-hmm. And tell us about that one. That's a, it's a Guild Artist Award from 1970. And it's, I love it. It's a, it's a beautiful instrument, but it's, it's very big. So it, it, <laughs> it's a little, I don't like to travel with it. I'll travel with it if I'm driving or something, but I don't like to fly with it. Um, it, it's just, yeah, it's a lot. So I usually play that guitar when I'm at home and, and when I'm traveling, I, I bring Flip's guitar. And then one other thing I noticed at that thumbscrew gig was your uh, pedal board. Mm-hmm. And it was, if I remember right, a DL4 mm-hmm. and a couple, two expression pedals. Yep, a volume right. pedal and a and a expression pedal for the Line 6. Expression pedal, right. And then was there also like a, a distortion? You have a rat in my... I have, you know, I don't know what I had then. Right now I'm using a rat copy. Um, it's like one of those little micro pedals. I've been into these micro pedals because I'm already carrying around way too much shit. So it's nice to be able to use these tiny little pedals. It's, um, it, the company is more, and I think the pedal is called Black Secret. And it's just a rat copy. It sounds great. It's smaller and, and much lighter than the rat. Um, and I also have a tremolo from them, which basically imitates like an old um, Fender Princeton or something, a tremolo. And then I have an octave pedal from them too, which recently I've been interested in using the high octave. It goes an octave higher. Mm. Um, but that's it. I mean, I, I don't, I don't have that many pedals and I basically had the same setup for, for 20 years. I add something occasionally, but. How does your use of effect effects help you find your sound? Cause so many jazz players are just straight guitar into amp. Mm-hmm. You know, even acoustic ones. Yeah, or maybe, you know, maybe a little overdrive, yeah. you know, when they want to get wild, but it's, you know, not effect intensive. I mean, I guess for me, I, I think of effects as, as one part of the joy of guitar. It's just, a, it's a fun thing about playing guitar is that you can use effects and manipulate the sound. But for me, it's not the main thing. Like I never practice with, with effects or, or with an amp. I always just practice acoustically, but I like having it um, almost like as a way to ornament the sound. So if you're playing a clean line and then you put some weird effect on it, it it's, yeah, it's like an ornamentation or just a way to um, augment the, the sound palette a little bit. Eat it up. The focus of this podcast is generally not gear, but 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 I got to ask: when you're using the DL4, mm-hmm. that's the green the green Line Six delay box. Um, are you using the controller pedal on wet dry mix or feedback? Or, um, or usually, what? it depends. I have a few things programmed in, but the main thing that I do is make almost like a pitch bendy sound, and the way I get that is. I'm basically turning the delay time knob with my feet. So when you go from no delay to a little bit of delay, it kind of goes and and makes that sound. So that's one thing I really like. Um, and I use, I've been using more kind of looping uh, and longer delays uh, also with the line six. Well, I tell you, I hope uh, being, a, uh, as I've learned this week, Mary, that you're a bit of a book nerd like myself. You like to write exercises that I hope one day you do write a book. <laughs> Well, yes. please do. Because I've written none of this stuff do. down. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today, Mary. It was, so, it was such a blast to, to hang and, and talk with you. Well, thanks, likewise. No, it's really fun to talk about all this stuff.